Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. Your hosts are Andrew Douglas, Managing Principal, FCW Lawyers, and Karen Liu, Principal Consultant, Found Consulting. Hey, Karen, how are you? I'm, uh, I'm well. How are you? Oh, I could be a bit dusty, I reckon. I was just having this theory that none of us were out for dinner last night and she was doing uh, Pilates this morning, did Downward Dog, and I think the closest I got this morning was Roll Over. I was feeling so ordinary. So, <laughs> Well, you know what? You're doing a lot better than me. Oh, well, at least I'm, I'm moving at the moment. So my exercise is, you know, walking up and down a lot of stairs and carrying boxes. So, Really? God, we, we lost power. We lost trees. We lost everything where I was today. So I had a... I, I mean, the good point was I did have a cold shower this morning that actually woke me up because we lost a pile of light and everything. So it's been a crazy morning and six o'clock, happy night, thanks for <laughs> Six o'clock today, it's um, open in Melbourne. So it's it's pretty exciting on that level. I've got a couple of things I want to say very quickly to Paul Franklin, if he's with us. It's his last week in work as he retires. So stick around, Paul, keep coming to our shows, but, um, you know, well done. Great stuff. Mm-hmm. Katrina asked a question last week also on businesses which have legislatively mandated codes of conduct. There's a number of them, but education particularly has two mandates of codes of conduct. And a question which I reckon was a terrific question is, well, look, how do you juggle? Where do you get priority? Um, The answer is, Katrina, that you have an overarching document, which is very simple, which is a positive code of conduct, which refers like a a tree and branch out from it, which says in respect of these matters, they are dealt with under this code. But we try and keep the values and behaviours at the top as the governing role of or the lens that we look through as to, as to what is good behaviour. So I hope that helps. All right, let's get into it, okay, because it's um, it has been a fairly big week. There's been, in the mandatory vaccination space, it has been a, a mega week, I think, would be the best way to describe it. Well, for one particular person, it has been a bit of a damning week. <laughs> Talk about adding salt to injury. Anyway. Now, Charles, you've asked a question. I wonder if I can ask a question from left wheel. We're in the process of asking our staff if they are prepared to share their photos on school websites. The moment we take the view, staff need to opt out of this arrangement. If they say nothing, we assume, yeah, that's fine, mate. That's, that's, there's no problems with that. It is personal information in the meaning of privacy legislation, so a person is able to say no, but you can set it as a request in the negative, and if they don't, it goes on. They can always say to you no and take it off. All right, let's answer that question. Let's just jump into this. Mandatory vaccination has been pretty exciting. The case of Kimber, which lost in the Fair Work, the full bench of the Fair Work Commission has now been appealed to the Federal Court and has exactly the same chance to in the Federal Court, which is zero. Deputy President Dean, who was the dissenting commissioner in that case, you'll recall, you know, I'm about to do something that's very dangerous, I better not do that, basically was described as a, a political pamphlet in the Queensland Supreme Court recently in the New South Wales Supreme Court. She's been sidelined by President Ross and is not allowed to sit on vaccination case or full bench cases until she's retrained. I think that's probably reprogrammed is what they mean. In Queensland, a number of police have had a go and the State Industrial Relations Commission have been chucked out. There is a matter that they've got through towards the Queensland Supreme Court that will be heard and determined uh, later this year. Again, absolutely no chance of success. And there is a case that's presently before the Victorian Supreme Court that started off with two or three people, it's now up to 117 people. That's probably a little bit more interesting because Victoria does have a human rights charter and although it is extraordinarily tenuous to suggest that it could have an impact, it'll be interesting, probably one of the first major cases on what is the breadth of the human rights charter 
in Victoria, but it will be chucked out and they will lose terribly there as well. But nonetheless, we'll get some real clarity around the Human Rights Charter, which is an incredibly important thing for employment law going forward as to how we manage and treat people in diverse environments. So I think really interesting case, and I'm looking forward to it, and I'm really pleased that Deputy President Dean has been hammered for the appalling judgment that she did in Kimber. I think the one also, Andrew, in Victoria, with um, the one that's um, picked up with, you know, you said 20 and now it's about 100 people, that's across various different sectors as well. So it'll, I think it's got the attention, everyone will be watching quite closely in terms of what, you know, what the outcome of that's going to be. So it's yeah, just not no, one I, particular group. But I think just to, to avoid people getting too excited, I guess, is, is my point. This is not a case that's going to be won. It's going to be lost. But what is exciting in this case is this consideration of the Human Rights Charter, which has not been terribly well understood by the profession, wasn't really crafted with an enormous intellect and understanding when the legislation went in and hasn't had great case law around explaining what are its parameters. So it, it's a really fascinating thing. And I'm, I'm looking forward to it anyway as a lawyer. Now, I've got a case which I think is a sort of funny case Oh, it's sad, probably a sad case would be the best. It's got a great name too, which is another reason why I chose it, which is Ranch on and Dog and Bone. And this is a case of a man who certainly was like a dog with a bone. He um, separated from his wife in a tech startup and then tried to use the pandemic as a ruse to get rid of her out of his life, even though she'd been working since 2012 as the marketing director in the business and introduced her own capital. You'd be not surprised to learn that the dog and bone lost the case and they end up paying around 27000 But what's important about this case, and there's almost nothing important except the salacious commentary I just gave you, what's really important about this case is the Commission are loath to permit sneaky redundancies through, okay? They scrutinise them really carefully, and that is because it's a jurisdiction that allows you to remove people with without much impact on the business. It actually excludes the unfair dismissal ratio. So the Commission defend what that is with enormous rigour. And I just remind people, if you, rather than getting rid of an estranged wife, if what you're trying to do is deal with someone who has a performance issue, please manage their performance. Don't try and say, mm, we can sneak this through as a redundancy, it's a pandemic, because if they fight it, you'll lose. Yeah, Andrew, but adding to that as well, if it's a redundancy, um, genuinely, that there is an expectation that the documents and the evidence supporting that, you know, business decision, that needs to be there. Yeah, it does. It does. And remember, we, you know, our view about being an employer is we always act well. And that's certainly what our clients do. And we say, you know, we, we're the best person in the room in any dispute. And the best, best person doesn't use ruses. The best person manages poor behaviour. So interesting case. Great facts. Safe Work Australia has released its figures for 2019-2020 in relation to fatalities and serious injuries. Karen, this is a really disappointing stage and it reflects a complacency that snuck into safety where safety has become paper compliance rather than safety. The last two years, 2019-2020, and remember we've seen less industry during this time than 2020. We've seen rather than a decline in the level of fatalities, an increase in the level of fatalities. And the sad part about that increase, by the way, this is an historical first because for 40 years there has been a decline and now there's this growth going up. And, and I guess this is the part I want to say to you is that the fatalities that are occurring are in the places we know they're going to occur. They are in traffic management areas, vehicular damage, they're in objects falling and they're in working from heights. 
Okay, the bulk of the fatalities in those three areas, and they've been the areas where fatalities have been happening for 30 years and where there is very simple safety systems to prevent them from occurring. And that's telling us something, isn't it? And it's across manufacturing, construction. It's, of course, always in agriculture because agriculture finds itself almost immune from safety because of the family nature of farming. But what I'm driving home in is we've lost the intent of safety. We've built systems. People now have them on iPads and they tick and flip and they forget the idea of safety is to stop people getting injured and killed. And that's why we're seeing this growth. It's not because there's more people in the workplace. There is less productive work that has been done in 2020 than any year in 10 years because of COVID. And we're still seeing a growth in it. And the other alarming figure that is growing is that in these deaths and serious injuries, a new cohort of people is emerging, and that's managers. So a substantial number of the deaths related to managers, and that reflects two things, which is over the last 15 years, the levels of management have flattened and managers are increasingly hands-on and they're increasingly engaged in the actual enterprise of doing stuff. And the second thing it shows is that the managers are not taking safety seriously. They're back towards getting productive outcomes and therefore they're immersed in what they're doing being productive, not immersed in what they're doing ensuring it's safe for themselves and others. So that's a terrible statistic, but a great opportunity for all businesses to say, look, managers, you're dying at an incredibly fast you know, your rate of death is increasing dramatically over the last two or three years because you're there. You must own this and make it safe for yourself and others. So they're the stats, Karen. They're, they're daunting, aren't they? Because it shows that we're slipping in our safety and yet we'd all believe we're getting better at safety. Yeah, indeed. It is It is disappointing. Having said that, the answers to that, to deal with that, Andrew, don't change. So it takes leadership. It takes uh, capability, and that's an ongoing piece around investing in training and reinforcing why these um, having a system and a framework that's easy to use and um, prioritizes safety every day for everyone. So that doesn't change. We've got to we, we're losing you know our focus on that. That this is the type of stuff that we're going to going to see uh, continue to happen. It was lovely yesterday. I was out at Ernetech catching up with Quinton and looking around the business and seeing. Our engineering-driven business introduces capital cleverly, structures the design and process in a safe way, and you can see as you're walking through this plant the focus that safety sits at the front of everything that's being... And it's so heartening. You know, I walked out of it in wonderlust over the technology that he has invested in, but also the structure of production, the way in which it's done from beginning to end. You go, you know, it's going to be safe. You're not going to hurt people if you do that sort of stuff. So you're right, it is leadership and it's the courage in leadership to say, look, we design and do everything from the start with a lens on safety. And look, I know another case where I may be becoming critical. If people feel I'm being overly critical of courts, um, write to me and I'll, I'll probably ignore you. But Fair Work Ombudsman brought a case some years ago against Avert Logistics. It was a contractor case, truck drivers, whether they're independent contractors or not. You all know the Workpack case has gone through about casuals and personnel contractors is before the High Court, which is the contracting version of the same cuts. So there's what is a casual versus a permanent work pack. Next case, personnel contractors, what is an employee versus a contractor, okay? And we spoke to you about what the arguments were in that case, and we actually went and spoke to the barristers who were involved to see what was the hearing they got from the High Court. And what the High Court kept focusing on, like in work pack, is, well, what is the document that defines who you are? 
Now, that decision has not come out, but it, it will come out soon. The reason I'm raising this case is, although it was heard in September 2020, uh, Justice Jarrett, who's never been fast at publishing decisions, managed to publish a decision over a year and a month later, which means he completely missed WorkPack and was relying on the full bench of personnel contractors. So it is based on the old case law. But what he did, and he's, despite my criticisms, he's a, a black-letter lawyer, he said, look, when you're finally balanced, when you look at that multifactorial test, you know, were they wearing the uniform, were they, did they have control? When you're looking at all those elements, when it's evenly balanced, you go back to the contract and say, what does the contract say? And that's what happened in this case, and as a result of which they were held to be contractors, okay, not to be employees of the Fair Work Ombudsman was virtue. I raise that now because personnel contractors is in the High Court and it's not long before that decision will be published and it will say unquestionably as part of the decision that the contract is the critical document. Yes, they'll look at the disparity in power that exists between a person who hires somebody who's a large business and an independent contractor and there'll be some look at the substance but the primary test will not be substantive, that is to look at what people are doing. It'll be formal, it'll look at how you are engaged. So for people who are using contractors, please refresh your contracts. Go back, look at the decision in WorkPack, look at how you should construct your contracts, chat to Matt or Nina here if you want, and they'll help you tidy them up. But be very, very clear about the fact of what you're engaging. So that brings us to um, the end of that part of the, the case law. And I guess we're moving into what Karen and I have been gradually merging. We started off on codes of conduct. We're then moving into performance management. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to dig deep around discipline and talk about where the failings are, what is the best process. What I want to do to set up Karen's discussion is this is to say, look, there's always three elements which go to the heart or the process in doing any form of performance management or discipline. The first part is fact-finding. Karen goes out to do an investigation. The first thing she'll take is, well, what is the lens I'm looking through? What does good look like? And once again... That fact-finding uses a code of conduct as the lens through which you look because it defines what is good and therefore you can say, well, he, he or she did this, it is not good because this is what good looks like. And remember in the last two weeks we've been talking about the behavioural indicators that demonstrate what are your values, what do they actually mean. The second part is the discussion you have with a person where you put them something and they have an opportunity to respond knowing what you say is not good. And what are the documents you bring to that meeting? They are your contract, they're your job description, they are your code of conduct, all of which define what is your role, all of which obviously must be up to date, lawful, and actually reflect what the person does. But the core behavioural document is the code of conduct. The third element is, if it's not termination at that stage, is you never ever performance manage or discipline someone and not set up a process of improvement that follows an engagement whether it's a performance improvement plan or it's just a plan you set up, please never have the last part of a performance or disciplinary discussion being the one where you give the person a warning. You must identify what are the behaviours that are good that need to be worked upon, where does that come from, job description, code of conduct, and you document it and you integrate the code of conduct into that performance improvement plan and you follow that through till the person improves it. If you don't, you end up in the Fair Work Commission like we do far too often where the person was belted around the chops once, 
made the same mistake six months' time and has been actually making the same mistake day in, day out, and nobody has done anything about it, and therefore you have condemnation and you get to commission, you can't do anything about it. Karen, over to you and your slide. Yeah, we've got Karen's word for the week coming up shortly too. If you've got a long word that I can stick into next week's problem, please let me know. Oh, please. All right. Thanks, Andrew. So with the code of conduct and throughout the disciplinary process, look, I've got three stages here for you. Around the show calls letter, at this part, and just you've got to be really clear around outlining what the organisational values are that relate to the issue, whether it's a performance issue or whether it's a behavioural issue, whether that's an offence or whether that's an outright breach. Let's be clear about what specifically, what are we talking about? Andrew mentioned earlier in terms of integrating the position description, the employment contract, where our yeah, in terms of what are the rules that govern in terms of what the job is and what good behaviour looks like. So although they're three or four separate documents, they are, they should speak, they're cut from the same cloth. So, and emphasising that through doing that and structuring that way, it will be very clear that the issue or the behaviour or the conduct or the performance is inconsistent in terms of what the organisation expects from the person. So when you're writing to people, and whether it's through a disciplinary process or not, but in this instance we're talking about that, very important to use language that is consistent with our code of conduct, structuring our message and particularly our letters so that we're clear around the expectation, the facts, the issue, the impact and the outcomes. Now, whether that is you know, ending the employment relationship or whether that's a performance management process ongoing, Let's be, there should be no doubt around what this is about and what's going to happen next. Avoid emotionally charged and absolute words. And when I say absolute words, I mean words like never or always. Really, again, appalling. being really... That's words like appalling. Appalling, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Checking the tone of the correspondence. Um, and it sounds really obvious, but you'd be surprised at the type of letters that we get to read sometimes. Um, is it professional, respectful, consistent and really, really clear? Hey, Karen, and always remember when you're writing here, you're also writing for another audience, and that's if it goes wrong, it's going to land in front of the Fair Work Commission or a judge, and they're going to say, are you a good employer or are you a nasty, powerful employer who seeks to oppress people? So write nicely to people. Absolutely. No harm at all. Yep, and it's really easy to do, right? So always keep that at front of mind and um, provide a copy of the con of the Code of Conduct as well um, with the correspondence. So in terms of verbalising the conversation uh, and the communication, prepare, be clear about who's going to be involved, how you're going to structure it, what do you need to say, who's going to say what, and as much as possible, have a conversation. I mean, scripts are really handy and useful, um, particularly when you're not used to having these kind of conversations because understandably they can be quite uncomfortable. But as much as possible, maintain a dialogue. And a scripts don't bring them into the room. And the reason for that is there's a case a year and a half ago where the script was actually called into and the script at the end of it said take a five-minute break and then terminate them. So remember, any document you bring into a room can form part of a court. The purpose of a script is to give you a, a heads up beforehand so you can have a bit of a practice, but don't take scripts into rooms. Yep. Again, using the language when you speak that's consistent with what you're writing and, again, consistent with the code of conduct. And lastly, always be respectful. Engage genuinely as much as you can. Listen intently. Be a good person. Be the better person. Um, as Andrew mentioned earlier, that you know, we're always going to be leading the way. You should be always leading the way in, in the room. So that's me. They're practical tips, Andrew. Yeah. And, look, next week we're going to dig deep into actually doing a performance management discussion between Karen and I, not not with each other. Karen's doing fine at the moment. I'm hungover, but 
might be not so good, but we'll look at what are the core elements around how you have this discussion. And I think it's really important because people get it wrong. They get it really, really wrong. And there is a structure you need, and we'll set up a slide that Karen will say, these are the tick boxes you need to remember when you're doing it so that next week we'll dig deep into that conversation. All right, and now we're over to the, um, the case study, Karen. It's your chance. All right, let's go. Case study. So Darren was an accounts clerk for Renee's Automotive Transmission. Rat. This is fantastic, Andrew. Customers commonly paid for work undertaken at Rat's Garage with credit cards and debit cards. Occasionally, they paid in cash. The owner, Renee, noticed they were often short between $100 to $200 cash against invoices every month. Darren was one of four people who received payment of cash for RAT. Renee thought it was Darren. Over the Melbourne Cup long weekend, Renee had installed hidden CCTV of the till, enabling clear picture of money put in and removed and by who. A review of the CCTV footage of Darren at the end of each week showed him removing a $50 note from each cash transaction which he was involved in. Renee called Darren into his office and said, you have been dipping your finger into the till for six months. What have you got to say? Darren looked sheepish and then blurted out, I don't ever steal your money. Renee told him he was sacked and threw him out of the office. After the sacking, a reconciliation of the money missing revealed that Darren only accounted for 25% of the money taken. They had no more CCTV footage of others. All right, let's go to the poll. Thanks, everyone. Thank you very much. Despite the failings in procedure, would RAT succeed at the Fair Work Commission? Now, we're a bit all over the place here, and I think we are rightly a bit all over the place. Let's just go through unfair dismissal. Was there a valid reason? So valid reason would require evidence that Darren stole money. That is, he took money with the intention to permanently deprive. Darren has actually said he didn't. No further questions were asked. What happens if Darren took that $50 because he was directed to to give it to the manager and it's the manager who actually took all the money? You see there's a part missing here and therefore there is no evidence at all other than that Darren has removed it that he actually took it himself. And if he was to say, no, I gave it to the manager or no, any $50 note we put in a separate place, I don't know what happened, but I gave that to the manager then I think you'd have some real problems. And this commonly happens at the Fair Work Commission, that you turn up to the Fair Work Commission and the proper explanation is given to you for the very first time and there's nowhere to go with it, okay? So at the moment, you probably don't have a valid... Next question would be, was it harsh? Well, Darren's worked there for a while and if we've formed the view that he's stolen, it's not going to be harsh. Is it unjust? In other words, is what we're doing lawful? And the answer for us is... To be lawful, we go back to the valid question, was there a stealing? Was there a taking with the intention to permanently deprive, which is what stealing is, and you don't have the evidence, and therefore it would be unjust, okay? Even if you got through on the valid, because there's circumstantial evidence that was removed and money disappeared, we just don't know whether it was his money that was the 25%. We don't know. We know that amount that we saw taken, equal 25%, but he may have put it somewhere quite safely and then handed in and somebody else who took all the money. We don't know that. And would it be reasonable? Don't really get to the question of reasonable when you when you fail on those two bases. So I think the answer is they would not succeed at the Fair Work Commission unless Darren agreed that he did take it, and then you'd definitely succeed on all elements of it. The next question is, in the termination interview, is Rat obliged to show the CCTV footage? And the answer is absolutely, and to show all, make available all of the relevant CCTV footage to Darren. 
And that comes from what's called the Ansett baggage handlers case, which was a case where baggage handlers rifled through people's belongings as they came out of planes. And they went and sacked four of them, but they were only shown snippets of their hand removing something rather than what occurred afterwards. And a number of the baggage handlers said, well, if you had waited, I was going through because we thought there was an object in there. And if you have a scene, I put it all back together. Okay, so CCTV footage is part of procedural fairness. You must show what you rely upon and allow the person to be able to view it in a way that they can rebut what is in it, okay? So the answer is, yes, you must show it. Now, interesting question. This was in Victoria, under the Surveillance Devices Act in Victoria. I am allowed to take CCTV footage of people, and I don't have to seek their permission, okay? So it's not a breach of privacy legislation. It's not a breach of the Surveillance Devices Act. That is not the case in New South Wales and Queensland, where covert surveillance must either be obtained by permission, the person agreeing to it, or by you putting appropriate signages and policies in place where people would know that CCT footage was there. What is the impact of that? Well, it is an offence to do it in New South Wales and Queensland. So that's the first part. So you become liable as an offence. And the second thing it is becomes unlawfully obtained evidence. And for those who've done evidence as a study, they'll know that there is a discretion then to look at is the unlawfulness of what you've done when on balance reasonable given the probative value, that is how important the evidence is to be admitted. So you may get it admitted in New South Wales and Queensland because it is the only way you could find out whether someone was stealing. And the answer is that's just not true. What you do is you mark notes. So you send somebody in who, with marked notes and if at the end of the day the marked note's not there and you've observed the only person who worked there that day was Darren, then you know it's Darren. Does that make sense? So there's many other ways to do this. We fall towards CCTV footage because it's so well known. Now, many of you say, well, what about governments who use CCTV footage? They do it because they have a legislative entitlement to do it, whereas we as private individuals in New South Wales and Queensland don't. So why I gave you this example, I guess, is please, this was set up to show you what happens when you jump to conclusions. So you get Darren right at the beginning, and he's one person who may or may not have taken it. He may have put it somewhere for safekeeping. All of the money may have been taken by somebody else, but you didn't review the CCT footage of others. You would definitely fail in the Fair Work Commission around that issue. And, of course, as a business, you fail because you fail to find out the truth. And what happens so often in dismissal cases is we poison the factual process. Remember step one that I talked about? Findings of fact. We poison it by a perception of who we think is liable, who is wrong. And then we shape or fashion the whole process around the person we don't like or don't want or want out, rather than reviewing all the CCT footage and seeing what's happened and carrying out an appropriate investigation, standing all the relevant people down and actually finding out the truth. An investigation in this process may have revealed everything we needed to do and maybe Darren wasn't the bad person. So what failed in this whole process was an investigative process. What failed in the whole process in New South Wales and Queensland was to immediately to set up the CCT footage and then, yeah, maybe nobody steals anymore. Is that a bad thing? It's just a question I want to put out there. Is that a bad thing? Are we there to capture people being bad or are we there to stop being bad? And the answer is there were many things that could have been done beforehand in New South Wales and Queensland which would have identified the person who was taking the money. Okay, so that's the problem this week. That is time. Thank you very much, everyone, for coming along. I hope you enjoyed that today, and I certainly did. I'm feeling a lot better for talking to you. Thank you, Karen. No worries. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, everyone. See you next week. See you next week, guys. Bye-bye.